If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, and we'll begin there. We're in a series that we started at the first of the year titled Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom. And uh, today I want to start within that just a, a, a sort of mini-series within the series on kingdom culture. Um, and so this is, as it were, part one of kingdom culture. And... Um, We'll, uh, we'll jump in, uh, Galatians 6 and beginning in verse 1, if you would join me in reading. And I'll be reading this text from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that this instruction from Paul the Apostle would uh, enter our hearts and bear fruit and grow and increase some 30, 60, and 100 times as much. And you would do this by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the uh, November uh, issue, just between believers, but never more than in the last year. Many have angrily left churches they once loved. Believers for, uh, who formerly chose churches based on Christ-centered Bible teaching and worship now choose them based on non-essential issues, including political viewpoints and COVID protocols. Churches are experiencing a pandemic of tribalism, he continues, blame and unforgiveness, all fatal to the love and unity Jesus spoke of. Rampant either-or thinking leaves no room for subtlety and nuance. Acknowledging occasional truth in other viewpoints is seen as compromise rather than fairness and charitability. Sadly, evangelicals sometimes appear as little more than another special interest group sharing only a narrow unity based on mutual outrage and disdain. We've been affected by this. Sure, the particulars of our church nuance the discussion in directions that the particulars of some other church might not nuance them, but we aren't different. Some blame each other. You know, if only they would fill in the blank with whatever it is they need to do. Some blame the elders or me, and I blame someone else. Wouldn't want to break the chain. <laughs> Regardless, one thing the last two years has taught me, and a costly lesson it is, we have not equipped this church well on how to ha handle disagreements, sinful or otherwise, how to approach each other, or how to communicate with the elders in a way that is other than frustrating. And by we, I really mean me, since I'm the primary teaching elder here and kind of dictate that diet. This hinders our ability to advance the gospel of the kingdom. You might wonder, what does this have to do with advancing the gospel of the kingdom? And I would say everything. Commenting on the well-known verse in John 13, 35, 
where Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Francis Schaeffer wrote the following. He said, If an individual Christian does not show love toward other uh, true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he or she is not a Christian. Then, referencing the prayer that Jesus prays, one we sang about this morning and was referenced in our pastoral prayer earlier as, as we prayed together in that, but referencing that prayer of Jesus, that we would all be one so that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son, Schaefer then writes, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So to be a church that advances the gospel of King Jesus, we must learn how to handle disagreements, sinful or otherwise, how to approach each other, or how to communicate with the elders in a way that is other than frustrating. To get there, all of us who have been involved in such disagreements must all be willing to own that we share in the guilt. As the main teacher here, I own more of it than you, but we share it together. There are plenty of places we could begin in this kingdom culture, but we must start somewhere, and we're going to begin as close to the center of that culture that must permeate any church that desires a kingdom culture, and that is with gentleness or meekness. We'll do this under three headings, restore in gentleness, watch yourselves, bear one another's burdens. Under that first heading, restore in gentleness. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I prefer the way that the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, translates that first line. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing. I mean, caught in sin is fine as long as we don't think, aha, I caught you. <laughs> this isn't about hunting somebody down to find their sin whatsoever. This is no fishing expedition. Rather, it is when they are captured by sin, when they are overtaken by sin, that is being addressed here. When anyone is captured by sin or overtaken by sin, transgression, um, wrongdoing, however you want to go with that, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. The spiritual are to restore them. Who are the spiritual? Paul clearly thinks that some are mature enough to carry out uh, this restoring, while others apparently are not. By using the language of spiritual, it becomes clear that it is not limited to those that are in a church office, such as elder or deacon. Now, that would be necessary, of course, because the one overtaken by sin could well be one of those in the church office. Could be ace. Others have. I think they're right. That in a very real sense, his instruction is self-defining. In other words, this term, spiritual, the spiritual are those who seek to restore one caught by sin in a spirit of gentleness. And if they don't do it in a spirit of gentleness, they're not spiritual. 
to this point, Augustine wrote, There is no surer test of the spiritual person than his treatment of another's sin. Note how he takes care to deliver the sinner rather than triumph over him, to help him rather than punish him, and so far as lies in his capacity to support him. The ability to produce witty gotchas does not constitute spiritual. Oh, I I won that argument. Great. What does constitute spiritual? The ability to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Now don't miss that the goal is always restoration. It, It isn't only to approach in gentleness or to be spiritually mature, but to actually restore. It it means to restore something to its proper condition. That's how that word is used, to make it whole again, we might say. We might use the word repair. And, And to restore or repair or mend, it naturally takes care. Amen? Consider the great lengths to which God has gone to restore us. To restore us to Himself. Should there be any doubt about the lengths to which we should go to restore others and one another so that we can be one? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes how we are to pursue a wayward brother or sister who has sinned. The process he offers is given immediately upon the heels of the parable of the lost sheep. The the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one, which ends in rejoicing. The goal is restoration. That's what the rejoicing is over, is restoration. The process isn't the goal. Yes, you see a brother sin, go to him. If that doesn't seem to be successful, go with uh, uh, one or two others so that every matter might be established by two or three witnesses. If that isn't successful, bring it to the church, etc., But the goal is restoration. There's no party. Oh, look, they went through the three steps or the four steps, depending on how you want to read that. Probably four, but okay. That's not where the rejoicing comes. The rejoicing comes when there's restoration. In a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, or alternately translated meekness is a central character trait of Christ-likeness, because, of course, it's a central character trait of Christ Himself. Amen? When we think of kingdom culture, at its very core is meekness, gentleness. Jesus wants to learn this from Him. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. James, the brother of our Lord, says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right above that verse, in James 3, he tells us that when we don't bring wisdom in meekness, it is unspiritual and from the devil. I'm not sure what he really means. He should be a little more clear about that. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Paul lists gentleness and similar traits as the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in us just prior to our opening text. So we began in Galatians 6, just a little bit above that, a few verses above that, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are vital to the culture of Jesus Christ that will maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we must pursue the unity of the Spirit earnestly. It's all the rage today to be authentic as the sort of pinnacle of spirituality. And if by authentic one means integrity, then that's good, though it's certainly not the pinnacle by itself. But if by authentic one means raw or edgy, it is the opposite of in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. It is a substitute for a lack of self-control or angrily. It is anything but Christian spirituality. It is simply the spirit of the age. The fruit of the Spirit grows where we have put to death the flesh with its passions and desires. Even some very authentic passions and desires, mind you, need to be put to death. Bookending Paul's discussion about the fruit of the Spirit, we have this. At the front end, you have... If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And then he goes into the works of the flesh, followed by the fruit of the Spirit. And let us not become conceited. He is at the tail end of that then, after that. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that last verse I read is the one immediately preceding chapter 6 and verse 1 where we began. The alternative to restoration in a spirit of gentleness is biting and devouring one another by becoming conceited and provoking or envying one another. Another set of verses should be included while we're on the topic of gentleness, and I think you're familiar with them. Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us, Therefore, as God's chosen ones holy and dearly love, put on or dress yourselves, be clothed in, Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also. A balanced wardrobe, you know, between opposing character traits. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with and forgiving are all of a kind. They're on the same side of the scale, if you will. This wardrobe is going together nicely, not contrasting. One cannot be gentle and hum- or humble or kind without being compassionate. One cannot be compassionate without being humble, kind, or gentle or patient. One can do none of these without bearing another's sin and sinfulness, as well as forgiving legitimate grievances. You just can't do it. Isaiah describes the reign of the Messiah as a time when, quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. You've probably seen pictures of this. You've heard these verses. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the, uh, the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's a glorious picture, but I've got news for us. Isaiah isn't talking about the zoo or the plains of Africa or the jungle. He's talking about the church. He could envision a day when the powerful and weak in the church did not destroy one another, envy one another, or as Paul put it, bite and devour one another. I imagine Paul may well have had this imagery in his mind. Instead, that the spiritual would restore those overtaken by sin in a spirit of gentleness. That leads to our second heading, Watch Yourselves. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's the end of verse 1 in our text. Even the spiritual must be on guard, lest in the process they too are overtaken by sin. This, this is no throwaway comment just because of standard rhetoric. No. This is a clear and present danger. It's a reality. The spiritual and unspiritual alike are tested and tempted often. Paul instructed Timothy to guard against this. He says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting uh, his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do as well. My greatest regrets in 33 years of ministry would have been avoided by heeding this warning. It's a constant battle for any, even to the spiritual, to avoid the trap of engaging opponents in like kind. Even when they are not opponents, engaging them in one's false perception of how they are being engaged. You know, you've got your actual opponents, and then you've got your opponents that you think are opponents that are actually your friends. You know, like when your spouse tells you something about yourself that you didn't really want to hear. It's this conflict between how can you dare say that, and I happen to know you love me. What is going on here? The perception is usually a shared responsibility between both parties. Hence, there's the need for gentleness in all parties. The problem is that we forget it too easily. The battle is not ours. Paul wanted Timothy to remember that the battle wasn't his. No matter what is brought your way or how it is brought, you must remain calm. Why? Because you're not the one fighting this battle. The Lord is. This is you don't get involved in the fight. You gently instruct and patiently wait. The Lord does the work. So Paul not only instructed Timothy to guard against this, but two of his co-laborers got tangled because, uh, in, in relationally because they did not guard sufficiently. And this is in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. You might be familiar with this story. In a lot of ways, I think it's 
the driving point of everything he said so far in the letter to the Philippians is to get here so that they can work through this, this, this unity in the church. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. We know nothing of, of that disagreement. We know nothing, but that's beside the point. We don't need to know anything, evidently. And they could not resolve it. They worked with Paul side by side, and they could not resolve it. Paul's exhortation to them is not to agree to disagree either. Anyone can do that if they try hard enough. It doesn't take a Christian to agree to disagree. That's not the culture Paul wants to see in the church. No, look, he wants them to agree to agree. But, but what if we don't agree? That's okay. Lay down your rights and agree to agree. Now that, that takes Christ. <laughs> that, that takes following the model of the cross. That's a whole nother level. That requires laying down their own position in which they are entrenched and being willing to agree with each other. Paul doesn't address the particulars of the problem in this letter, but instructs them in how to resolve it. He calls on one or more of the other gospel laborers to help these sisters. So that there's three or maybe four of them, rather than one to one. He reminds everyone that these ladies have been faithful gospel laborers. And then he instructs this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The NIV says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The CSB, your graciousness. All three are correct. It's, it's not the same word for gentleness that's in our text, but it certainly includes it. According to the BDAG lexicon, not, it, it means not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. This has not characterized com many conversations in church, but it should. These attitudes are going to have to be applied if we are ever going to find the way to agree to agree. And that's the goal, not just to agree to disagree. Finding a way to be of one mind. This is what it means for the lion to lay down with the lamb and the young child to play with the cobra. Now, to be sure, agreeing to agree can give one many anxieties about what if. Paul instructs them and us to bring those anxieties to the Lord in prayer. And that is absolutely necessary for the peace of God to rule in the church and our minds in the midst of that. That we entrust ourselves and our rights to God and not to winning a debate. And that leads to the third heading, bear one another's burdens. I'm going to 
mostly in, under this point, invite my friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer to our service this morning to help instruct us in this point. Uh, and thankfully, his words have been recorded for us so that we can. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, our text says, Galatians 6 2. Bear one another's burdens. This might be where we get tripped up mostly, or at least most easily. Bearing one another's burdens with what weighs others down, in other words, is hard. We have a hard enough time bearing our own burdens, right? Now you want me to help bear theirs? Yeah. And of course, the idea is they're going to help you bear yours, too. But hard is the way that leads to life, Jesus said, so that shouldn't surprise us per se that it's hard. One cannot be gentle and watch out for themselves if they are not bearing the burdens of the person overtaken by sin, or whom they believe to be overtaken by sin. Nor can one love their brother or sister in Christ if they are not bearing their burdens. The law of Christ, or we might say the king's law, since Christ is that term for the coming king in Israel and their promises, the king's law is to love one another. Paul had just mentioned this law of Christ, as it were, in chapter 5, verse 14, when he said, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The alternative is, verse 15 that we read earlier, that they bite and devour one another. Rather than biting and devouring one another, if we are to love, our, we are to love one another, and if we are, we must bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We we can't fulfill the law of Christ without bearing one another's burdens. So how do we bear one another's burdens? Well, here's where my friend Bonhoeffer uh, will come to our aid. In life together, uh, in the chapter under service, he suggests the following. He says, the first service one owes to others in the community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's Word, the beginning of love for for other Christians is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives us God's Word, but also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. Many people, he says, seek a sympathetic ear and do not find it among Christians because These Christians are talking even when they should be listening. But Christians who can no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God either. And this applies to pastors and people alike. Whether Paul intended that bearing one another's burdens included listening or not, I cannot say, but I can say that we will never be able to hear one another's, or we will never be able to bear one another's burdens if we are not able and willing to listen to each other. I believe we have failed one another here. Culturally, we are certainly being trained not to listen to each other. Dialogue has been replaced with two monologues. 
Now, you've got two parties. They're both talking, but you just have two monologues going on. Preaching is monologue, and so, though necessary, if we do not intentionally create venues for listening, it will contribute to a culture of monologue. This very sermon could fall into that trap. Sending letters, emails, manifestos, or theses are monologue and are rarely an effective means of listening to the party being approached, and therefore those who teach on peacemaking highly recommend against using such forms of communication whenever possible. However, back to my introduction today, the onus of responsibility falls on us as leaders to create and teach pathways of communication so people are not left to send what unintentionally becomes a written IED. We have not done that effectively to date, and I hope to begin um, carving that path in upcoming messages. I hope this one is at least a first installment toward that direction. Bonhoeffer gets more specific on what it means to listen. Quote, There is also a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. This impatient, inattentive listening really despises the other Christian and finally is only waiting to get a chance to speak and thus to get rid of the other. This sort of listening is no fulfillment of our task. It should be no surprise that we are no longer able to perform the greatest service of listening that God has entrusted to us, hearing the confession of another Christian. If we refuse to lend our ear to another person on lesser subjects. If anyone is ever going to entrust us to confess their sins, we better well have first, I mean, it would be required that first we've demonstrated an ability to listen to them in many other things. After going on to describe helpfulness as the second service, which Bonhoeffer says Christians owe each other, and that itself is worthy of an entire sermon, but another day in time for that. Then he draws this third service which Christians owe to one another from our text itself, and that is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says this, The other person is a burden to the Christian. In fact, for the Christian, most of all, Christians must bear the burden of one another. They must suffer and endure one another. Only as a burden is the other really a brother or sister and not just an object to be controlled. The burden of human beings was even for God so heavy that God had to go to the cross suffering under it. You see, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to bear anyone's sins. You're not required to. You might, but you're not required to. But as a Christian, you must. And hence they become a brother or sister. It's a bit like family. You know, you can choose your friends, but you don't pick your family. <laughs> it's a reality, and that means you've got to bear what comes with it. If we desire to fulfill the law of Christ, and I think we all do, I, I'm, I'm confident, I mean, I don't, I don't know every single person's intent here, but I'm pretty confident that those here would desire to fulfill the law of Christ, then we must be willing to bear one another's burdens. Those burdens are often the sins we must, must forgive and forgive daily. 
even after they've ceased doing them, because we're always, we always will be tempted to want our pound of flesh, even for past sins and offenses. That desire will lead right back to biting and devouring one another. Is this not what Christ does for us? Has He not borne our sin? Does He not bear it forever? Or might we expect someday that it will come back to haunt us? I suggest not. Well, time does not allow to explore this area of bearing one another's burdens fully. It likely deserves a message all its own, given the volume of New Testament instructions to forbear with each other. But we must close this sermon and give some practical instruction. Paul is on making sure you root out the sin itself. Now note I said more than, not to the exclusion of. More than. Yes, sin is important to deal with, but not as important as how we deal with it. I want to share from a book, The Peacemaking Church, by Curtis Heffelfinger, um, from his chapter titled, Shaping Our Approach as Peacemakers with the Right Touch. Shaping Our Approach as Peacemakers with the Right Touch. And he summarizes that approach under the grace approach. And so here is his description of the grace approach. And this, I think, will help all of us to learn how do we restore those who are captured by sin in a spirit of gentleness. First, he says, set your sights. And by the way, this is on the back of your handout because I just wanted you to be able to take this home. You're not getting questions this week. This is just application. Take it home, apply it, work it, live it, think it, breathe it, whatever you need to do. On Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in striving, and by the way, I think I've got that misprinted as mediate, but it's meditate often on Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in striving for the humble spirit that is ours in Christ Jesus. Second, if you find yourself needing to address an offense with someone, always carefully plan your approach in peacemaking. Think about the best time to engage. Never react from a place of high emotion, frustration, or defensiveness. Choose words carefully, knowing the power of the tongue. Whenever you can, relate in person with someone as opposed to using social media or using the phone, social media, or email. Too much is lost in communication through those means. And he expands on why that is from a book titled Difficult Conversations. And that's for another time. We'll get to that. And remember, and I'll say this now for the third time, the onus is on us as leaders to make clear pathways for doing so. It's on us, and we have failed to do that. I have failed to do that. But we must make clear pathways for doing so, not only as it relates to us, but as it relates to one another. How do you communicate with each other? What are those pathways as well? Third, he continues, don't prematurely give up on pursuing reconciliation with others. Give your brothers and sisters time to process. Wait, 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 wait. Just because you don't see a breakthrough on the first or second time doesn't mean that the Lord will not honor your efforts further down the road. There is a finish line, and it is restoration. Fourth, when you think you've taken all you can take in the messiness uh, uh, others create in your life, 
And sometimes that, can, that, that is true, he says. In other words, there, there are times when you have taken all you can take. So we need to be aware of that. But he continues, more often than not, you can endure more. You can bear more. By God's grace and His Spirit's help, you can put up with more from the saints with which you share community in your church. Fifth, and most importantly, draw strength from the gospel to do all the above. Soak in Colossians 3.13 regularly, and then he goes on to emphasize from that verse this line, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I want to close with this reminder. According to Jesus, all of us, me, Hannah, I'm sorry, you, Stephanie, Ryan, Pete, all of us, are prone to blindness toward our own sin and presumed clarity on the sin of the other. Our own blindness must lead the way in our engagement lest we both fall in a ditch. In other words, awareness of our own blindness, constantly examining ourselves. Because, I mean, I don't know about anyone else, I am blind. I find it super easy to identify other people's sin. Super easy. That is not a spiritual trait. That is not a gift. That's called being human. I find it super difficult to see my own. Super difficult. And I'm guessing that's how it works in your home too. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you as one body, one people, we come in need of mercy to help in our time of need. We ask you to do this, to help us in these things and make a path clear before us, to make a level plain so that the mountains are made low and the valleys are brought up so that we might find our way to you in these matters. In Jesus' name, amen.